There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Anywhere human life coexists with freezing weather and a large icy body of water, you'll find a tradition of people gathering in the dead of winter to hurl themselves into those icy depths. This is Christmas Day for 1996. It's Gold with Cork. John, this is John with his bottle of brandy. Fair play to John. There are common features to the ritual. The nerve-stealing countdown the shrieking children and the pained whooping of the men as they plunge into the freeze. And there are onlookers, bundled up in their winter coats, sipping hot whiskey, laughing and cringing as they chart the wretched path of a friend or relative through the surf. Skull has a swim every year at Christmas Day down at the pier. Back in 1996, a young woman named Florence Newman, home for the holidays from Dublin, made this video on a big hulking camcorder. Oh, there's a fine wish cock man, if you know. Florence is an expert sportscaster. Even though the actual event isn't so much a swim as a melee, with people wading around turning blue, it's the social event of the Christmas season. Oh, hold on now, Dennis is giving us a flash of the nether region. And I don't know if I... Oh, Dennis, oh, Dennis, that's enough now, Dennis. This is a family programme, Mike. <laughs> the swim brings together people from all over, far-flung relatives home for Christmas, people who just turn up for the spectacle, and some faces that locals don't recognise. And where are you from, Toby? I'm from Oklahoma in America. Oklahoma, long way from Skull now, isn't it? All right, but I'm living here now. And do you have any message for the people of Skull, huh? Oh, gosh, that I love it here a lot. Fair play, okay, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to you as well. Thank you. But there was something different about the 1996 swim. This is West Cork, an Audible original series. I'm Sam Bungie. I'm Jennifer Ford. And this is episode four, Killer Among Us. There was a guard, Detective Kevin Kelleher, out on the chilly pier, scanning the swimmers and onlookers for anyone, anyone, who might bear injuries from, say, wielding a concrete block or chasing someone through briars. Injuries on their hands that might suggest they've been involved in a struggle. He noted that Florence and others were filming the event. Later, he would arrange for a copy to be made of this video, and it would become a piece of evidence in the investigation into the murder of Sophie Toscan de Plantier. I remember being down at the pier on that Christmas day. That's Len, the guy who traded his car for a donkey. There was like a veil over 
of a skull, really. It was an atmosphere. Can say whether the killer was a local or someone from abroad. It was a local person who did it. That person could do it again. That is correct. It was no Christmas, um, Sam. Tom Quinn, the house painter, he says that feeling seemed to consume the town. There was no Christmas. We went through the motions of Christmas. We cooked the dinner, we gave out the presents, blah, 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 blah. We went through the motions of it. But at the back of our minds, we were still trying to figure out what was going down. It wasn't much of a Christmas for scenes of crime detective Eugene Gilligan either. He'd been at the post-mortem until late on Christmas Eve and then driven home to Dublin. And uh, I got in at quarter to five uh, on Christmas morning, put together a train set, um, big Barbie doll house, I think it was, with three daughters. Then we did food, had dinner, Christmas dinner. I fell asleep at about three o'clock afternoon in the chair, everybody there. They left me alone. That was grand. Got up the next morning, half five or six o'clock, back to Cork. Gilligan would spend days at the crime scene, bagging and tagging physical evidence. Experience told him that with a frenzied attack like this, forensics would help lead them to the killer. That's what we would naturally and normally have assumed. Instinct is that I think there should be evidence available to prove a culprit was here because of the violence that it was. He says the list of items taken from the crime scene would run to pages and pages. The bloodied slate and the concrete block from next to the body, her blue bathrobe. They even took the entire farm gate from the bottom of the drive. The gate may have yielded a finger mark or something like that. They would launch a search for the third weapon that had made the cuts to the back of Sophie's head and hands and they would get a lead from Sophie's housekeeper that there was a small hatchet missing. It was usually kept by the back door and used to split firewood. The search for the murder weapon continues also in the fields and hills around the holiday house at Tourmore, about eight miles from Skull, where Madame Duplantier had been spending Christmas. Gradually, the search area has been widened to include mine shafts in the area, but it is tedious and difficult work. DNA testing was just getting started, but Detective Gilligan would send samples overseas. He'd even travel to a new state-of-the-art lab in England carrying bags full of briars he'd clipped from the hedges around Sophie's body. You're going to work in the morning in the traffic and you're going to say, no, I have to do that and I have to... Someone must look at that again or... And you'll have something set up and it's there, it's, it's always there. It's constantly inside in your head. But it would all come to nothing. Even the tiny smear of blood they thought they found on Sophie's back door turned out to be too small to test. There would be no evidence from the blood, nail scrapings and other samples they took from Sophie's body. The strands of hair wound around her fingers were her own. Detectives figured they'd come away in her hands as she tried to protect her head from her attacker's blows. The one interesting footprint they found close to the body was impossible to accurately cast. The liquid plaster kept seeping through the gravel. The search of the area around the house at two more has been scaled down and the murder weapon hasn't been found. Chief Superintendent Smith said this was a disappointment, but it was a very difficult area to search. 
trying to figure out how forensics came up with nothing. It's difficult to know if it had anything to do with all those delays on the first day, or whether it was just down to bad luck. Gilligan said that an outdoor scene can be difficult to preserve, but that he was happy with how the scene had been handled by the local officers. So was it possible that the person they were looking for had managed to be very careful while apparently losing their head? Years later, new DNA tests would be carried out on material from the scene, and a decade later still, Sophie's body would be exhumed for examination by French scientists. But that all came to nothing too. It seriously disappointed all of us, but certainly me, that I went to a crime scene and it didn't matter where it was or what it was. I would walk in and say, I do my very best to get whoever has just done that. That person didn't deserve that. And somebody needs to be held responsible for that. We were deemed the experts that we would get the answer. The responsibility was our responsibility. Detective Gilligan told us a case like Sophie's, a homicide where a suspect doesn't emerge quickly, is pretty rare. They had a murder victim they knew little about and no steer on who they might be looking for. They had to start trying to build a scenario. The guards knew something had occurred to entice Sophie out of bed that night. That's where Detective Dermot Dwyer came in. Oh, yes. I think we are quite satisfied that she was above in the house that night on her own, spoke to her husband, and somebody knocked on her doors, and she came down, and she had her shoes at the bottom of the stairs and put her feet into them and went to the door, and everything happened from there. Here's Detective Gilligan. Why? There's a lady about 100 metres from her dwelling in night clothing, fatally assaulted. How fast, what the timeline would have been for that? Could have been seconds. It's amazing the damage can be done to a human body in seconds, if it's violent enough. The red mist and it just comes down. It's like a, it's like a, a veil comes in. Gilligan has plenty of experience of arriving at a crime scene and witnessing the damage done by people who have been taken over by what he calls the red mist. The brain gets into a vicious cycle and literally there's no reasoning outside of doing what you're doing. And a lot of times they'll have no recollection because the brain has literally firestormed into this violence. That's why victims could be stabbed 50 times if the, the perpetrator can't have what they think they're, they're, they're entitled to have. It could be sex, it could be drugs, it could be a debt, it could be anything. And they see only one way out of this. Now, did he entice her down? Did he try to have sex with her? Or whatever. And she said, listen, good luck and thanks. And he could start off simply with a push push it to the ground. If she fought, then he'll start fighting back and then it gets worse and worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. That's the normal procedure for violent crime. 
At Bantry Garda Station, a team of 60 detectives has been assembled, including officers from Dublin and Cork City, who joined those from the West Cork region. Everything that happens in the course of an investigation must be channeled through that room. Detective Dwyer spent a lot of time in the incident room in those first few days. Every evening, there's a conference. And everything that happens during the day and any new information, everything is discussed openly and honestly. There's no other thing as keeping some things back. Everything is open. Detective Dwyer explained that there was a central casebook for the murder investigation, with all photography, mapping and forensics. Everything goes in that book. A memo of a phone call or an interview is jotted onto a form called a flyer and put in the book. Witness statements are sent to a typing pool and indexed. They go in the book. The detectives assumed whoever wielded this 20-kilo concrete block was a big guy and probably prone to rage. So the type of guy who might stand out. You're dealing here with not an ordinary individual. We were looking for somebody that was regarded as a, a peculiar guy. They also figured the killer had local knowledge. A stranger would not find it. I could go so far as to say that if I rang a policeman in Bantry, which is about 15 miles away or something like that, and told him to go out there, he'd have a problem finding it. Your own common sense would tell you that whoever did it had to know the locality. I thought that was an advantage. They narrowed their search for the killer to a particular part of West Cork, the Mizzen Peninsula, the isolated stretch of land with Skull and Crookhaven and a few other towns. They put out public appeals for information. Gardy said they want to hear from anyone who may have noticed a person with suspicious wounds or cuts or with stained or marked clothing. While they want to solve the murder quickly, Gardy acknowledged that because of the lack of information locally in Skull about the dead woman, it could be a long and difficult investigation. They're asking for the public to phone the incident room with any information. On Christmas Day, they got a call from a local shopkeeper, Marie Farrell. She called to say she recognised the dead woman, that Sophie had been in her shop that past Saturday afternoon. At the same time, Marie noticed a strange-looking man standing across the street from the shop. Marie described this man as slim, medium-height, tanned with short hair, wearing a long black coat down to his ankles and what looked like a French beret. The following morning, Sunday morning, she drove past the same guy, hitchhiking on the side of the road. Marie didn't stop. It struck her as odd because she'd been in town for a year now and she'd never seen this man before. Reports came in of other odd sightings. And information from the public in Skull Village has reported a number of cars being spotted in the Tullamore area around the weekend before the murder was discovered. Suddenly West Cork was a staging ground for a manhunt. We were plagued them with detectives and camera crews and Jesus. It was nightmarish. Doors were being knocked on. People who you knew were being questioned. The six o'clock news showed reporters standing in the middle of town. It became claustrophobic, particularly for people in Skull, like Len Liptic. This was enormous for the community. People going through their own thoughts, wondering, obviously, why it happened and who did it, and could it be somebody living next door to you or down the road or anywhere? He says it was at this point. People started questioning First of all, the red car. just how well they knew one another. To have that person as a neighbour, as a friend. Is it, is it somebody I know? 
I started looking at different people in different ways. You know, in ways that I'd never even have any reason to look at them in that, that way before, you know? <laughs> Your mind starts going off into all sorts of directions, you know, about various people. And do you think, looking back on it now, do you think that uh, it was something about that, the atmosphere at the time that may, you know, maybe you were... Oh, it's definitely the atmosphere. I mean, everybody wanted to know who did it. Everybody wanted it resolved. Everybody wanted it finalised. Everybody wanted to know it was dealt with. End of story. Out of everybody's life. Len even went to the guards. Not about a stranger, but about someone he knew. A single guy living with his mother, right near Sophie's house. Len had no proof, no evidence, and no reason to believe this guy even knew Sophie. Today, he's embarrassed to have ever doubted him. It's terrible. I felt really guilty. I, now I feel really guilty of ever having these thoughts, you know? When you've had a thought, you've had a thought. The guards ran down Len's thought because Detective Dwyer says they were almost totally reliant on this kind of lead. In our case, with like every other the case, it started on a very broad way, and little bits of information then start coming in about different people in the locality, unusual people, and there were about 40 or 50 suspects. But I suppose some of them, the threshold to make them suspects would be very low. When Dwyer says 40 or 50 suspects, he's not exaggerating. Another detective would later say that at the height of the investigation, the guards had amassed no fewer than 53 suspects. It might sound like a crazy way to run an investigation, but they had to look at everyone. For example, we had a man down that went out every night at one or two o'clock in the morning and he'd be knocking off tins of gas and some other fellow could be stealing eggs. And There's a lot of odd people in, in, in the locality. And eccentric, I suppose, would be another word for him. And you see, to other people, they're, they're funny people, they're dangerous, they're suspect people, and all of them come in and as a result, they have to be eliminated. It's a kind of a slow process. Answers were going to have to come from people in the community. People like Len, spotting strange-looking people in strange places. And in rural areas, guards can generally rely on community networks, everyone knowing everyone, large families going back generations that can vouch for each other, or tell you who stole the Wellington boots from the general store, or who has a drinking problem, or who beats his wife. But West Cork was also filled with blow-ins that this old community network didn't know much about. The guards contacted Interpol for a list of foreigners in West Cork with criminal records. In return, they received a dossier of thieves, drug dealers and sex offenders. The finding made national headlines. The Daily Mirror declared international criminals infiltrate Ireland. One guard, speaking anonymously, told a newspaper the force was a bit surprised that some of these people were here without anybody knowing their backgrounds. And there was no shortage of places for someone to hide out. The guards searched 300 vacant holiday homes and abandoned farmhouses in the wild terrain of the Mizzen Peninsula. You're saying somebody's shielding somebody, somebody's hiding somebody? Well, it, we might call it shielding, but to the person who has the information, they mightn't see it as hard as that. But the message I want to get across to anybody who has information is that, in fact, they are shielding somebody. Are you who is capable, who knows who... If, if somebody committed a crime at this atrocity, well, then the tendency is in them to do the same thing again. 
It's like reality hit you. The city hit you. Smack. People had to start worrying about things that they'd never had to worry about before. People like he noticed, people's habits started to change. If you saw a fellow walking down the road, do you know, do you want to lift? That's what people did. And that stopped. Because now all of a sudden it's a dangerous thing to do. And you've got to be careful where you go, who you speak to. So everybody shut their doors, didn't they? You only sort of dealt with people you knew, that you knew very well. You know, a, a way of life had to change. For some, the change was an opportunity. Like Ian Bailey, the local reporter who took us out to the crime scene. I had newspapers contacting me, French magazines were contacting me, BBC and various organs, um, and I was supplying them with information. And it was clearly a big story for West Cork, and I just happened to be um, in, I thought, well, I just happened to be here. One of Ian's scoops came from a local couple who told him Sophie had been frightened by something during her cliff walk hours before her murder. He wrote in the Sunday Tribune, Murdered French filmmaker Sophie Toscan de Plantier experienced a deep sense of unexplained dread only hours before her brutal slaying. Ian picked up scraps about the guards' investigation. I knew a lot of people were getting visits, and I was talking to people who were getting visits. And now I was saying, well, what are they doing? And I knew that certain people had their fingerprints taken and hair samples. The guards were speaking to people who had business down that way, people who knew the road and that Sophie was at the end of it. You know, I, I worked on her house. Tom Quinn told the guards he'd never met Sophie, but he had done some painting at her house that summer. I said, I'll tell you exactly where I was in the house. I, I didn't work on the outside, but I had to go into the kitchen. But this was six months prior. Uh, I said, if my fingerprints are there, they will be in the kitchen. <laughs> you know, they won't be anywhere else. The guards returned to Tom. They wanted to know, was he sure he'd never met Sophie? And all of a sudden I was doubting myself. Did I? You know, did I actually meet her? I'm not sure. You know, uh, maybe I did. Um, Jesus Christ, maybe they've got a picture of me talking to her and I don't even know who she is, you know. And you, you begin to doubt yourself and all of a sudden I felt kind of completely vulnerable. Then there was Leo and Sally Bolger. Leo was a local handyman and had done carpentry work on Sophie's house. His partner Sally kept horses nearby. I mean, we never had any objection, for sure, to, you know, being ruled out. You know, <laughs> that's what you hope you're heading towards, that you're being ruled out of the investigation. But the guards didn't seem to be ruling them out. Instead, the pressure kept building. The guards separated them to cross-check their stories. They took fingerprints and hair samples. It, did, it, it got to the point where I rang a solicitor or I rang my solicitor to, to actually, you know, prepare him that I might be actually ringing him from the barracks one time. You know, that's how it started to feel. Did they ever, to kind of give you an idea of why they thought you might have motive to... to... Well, someone told them that we wanted her house and her land. You know, we had just sold the place we were in. We wanted to move on to a bigger farm. So it wasn't a huge leap to think that maybe we'd murder her for her house and her 13 acres of land that she has there or had there, you know. 
You can imagine the detectives tossing the scenario back and forth. So the two blow-ins want the land from the third blow-in. The French woman's using the place just a few times a year, and maybe the other two resent that. He works on the house, gets to liking it. The woman, Sally, keeps her horses up there, and she's thinking about starting a pony training centre. This place could be perfect. So they make Sophie an offer. She turns them down. Things go south, and so they take matters into their own hands. So, yeah, that was floated at some stage. It's a suggestion as to why we might have done it. Which, for the record, you didn't. No. No. No, <laughs> no, no, it's easier by a place. <laughs> yeah. Was it possible Sophie was killed over a property feud? Well, the guards did learn that Sophie's laneway was a hotbed of neighbourhood disputes. They heard about all kinds of grievances, like the one Sophie's neighbour Shirley had against the local farmer Finbar for letting goats loose on their property, which then ate through her vegetable patch. Or when Shirley's cat got into Sophie's house and hid in the chimney and then walked her sooty paws all over the furniture. But if the guards were sifting through this looking for grounds for a murderous feud, there wasn't a lot to go on. Who knows how much weight the guards were really giving this information. For a room full of detectives investigating a crime with no hard evidence, no apparent motive, maybe one theory is as good as the next. But were these leads being pursued by the entire department? Or were factions or individual detectives pursuing their own pet theories? And who was feeding the guards these ideas? Sally and Leo even heard the guards were chasing down a theory that Sophie was caught up in the drug scene, a mule running West Cork weed back to Paris a couple of times a year. They think people in the community were using the opportunity to settle scores and take a dig at people they just didn't like. That's what Sally thinks happened to them. That was difficult for them. And all they're going on is gossip. People's thoughts on blow-ins and stuff, yeah. A guard with a, a pen and a paper sitting in front of you, it was your time to uh, shine, <laughs> you know. To vent it. Yeah. And that put them on the wrong trail for quite a while. You know, when it's something like that happens, it's time for all the messing to stop, you know. Then you think people will pull their heads in and actually tell the truth and be serious. But it doesn't seem to work like that, you know. On January 11th, day 20 of the investigation, the guards had a breakthrough. A call came in to Bandon Garda Station. The nervous-sounding woman on the line wouldn't say where she was calling from and didn't want to use her real name. She said to just call her Fiona. She said she'd driven past a man walking along the coast road between 3 and 4 a.m. the night Sophie was murdered. She was crossing a little humpback bridge known locally as Kilfada Bridge, right by the turn off towards Sophie's place. I just picked up this man in the headlights of my car, staggering along the road. He just appeared to be drunk. Um, he was staggering and sort of waving his hands around. Fiona said the man was wearing a long black coat and some kind of hat. He was stumbling along, holding his hands by the sides of his head and wiping them down his clothing. The woman hung up. 
saying she'd call back, but without leaving any contact details. They traced the call, but it was to a public phone box in Cork City. They waited for Fiona to call for eight days, but she didn't. Now they had a mystery man seen by a mystery woman, so they decided to launch a public appeal for her to come forward. They reached out to the producers of a national television show, Crimeline. The brutal murder of Madame Sophie Toscan du Plantier shortly before Christmas Day has shocked the public and struck fear into the quiet community of West Cork. The body of the 39 One in four people across Ireland tuned in. The ratings were higher than the most popular TV soaps. In a drama reenactment, Sophie was played by an actress driving around West Cork, dressed in clothes similar to those Gardy knew Sophie had been wearing. They showed CCTV footage of Sophie arriving at Cork Airport. Here we can actually see Sophie walking through the arrivals gate. These are the last known pictures of Sophie. She's wearing her long blonde hair in a single plait, and she has a pale complexion and deep-set grey eyes. She was a petite woman of five foot one. On Friday, she was wearing a three Hoping to jog viewers' memories, they ran through Sophie's movements that weekend, right up until her phone call to Daniel late on Sunday night. At 10 to 11, Sophie phoned her husband in France. He returned her call at 11 o'clock. This was the last time her voice was to be heard by her husband. What happened over the intervening hours remains a mystery. At the end of the show, Chief Superintendent Noel Smith appears, looking nervous in his uniform under the studio lights. Behind him, you can see a room full of guards taking calls and making notes. The Crime Line host feeds him a line. Now, you particularly want to address yourself uh, to somebody who, who attempted to contact you and then didn't come back to you again. Well, we did have a contact, Marion, last week. Uh, a caller made a phone call to Bandon Garda Station and uh, that caller gave us certain information which we think could be critical in, in solving this murder. He's talking about Fiona, the anonymous caller. Now, we know that that caller intended to call back a few days later. The caller has, that call has not been returned. And I'm making a direct appeal to that person tonight to ring me here. Fiona's sighting was doubly important since it seemed to tally with another statement. The guards had spoken to a local guy who was out that night. He was leaving his friend's house, not far from Sophie's. He wasn't sure of the time, maybe around 1.45 or 2 a.m. He said that as he was getting into his car, he'd heard a howling coming from the direction of what he knew to be Alfie Lyons's place, Sophie's neighbor. He said he'd stood still for a moment with his car door open, listening. He decided it must be an animal and drove home. But yes, he told the guards, in hindsight, it could have been a woman screaming. Guards put this down as a possible time of death. If Fiona's black-coated man was the killer, this timing gave him long enough to reach Kilfada Bridge by the time she drove past, between 3 and 4 a.m. My direct appeal, indeed, my heartfelt appeal still, still holds that that person who phoned Bandon Garda Station would contact this programme tonight mm. or would contact me via Bandon Garda Station. Right. I'm still making that request as yeah. urgently as I can possibly make it. As Chief Superintendent Noel Smith spoke, calls were coming in from all over, mostly with tips that would lead nowhere. A man with a scarred face spotted 200 miles away on a bus. A scarf found in a stolen car in Dublin with a label that read Made in France. 
There was no call from Fiona that night, but she was watching. She called the next day, again from a phone box, and asked to speak to Smith. She made an appointment to meet him, then she called back to cancel. But this time, she made a mistake. She called from home, and the guards traced the call. It was a house just outside Skull. Smith called in a local guard and asked him to listen to a recording of the phone call. He recognised the voice. Fiona was Marie Farrell, the woman who had already told the guards about seeing a strange man, a man in a long black coat. Guards paid her a visit. She told them it was her who had been making the phone calls. She was using a fake name because she was out driving that night with a man who wasn't her husband. Marie gave a statement that the man she saw looking at Sophie and Skull, out hitchhiking and out on the road the night of the murder, was the same guy. A blow-in. The guard started dropping his name around West Cork. It stuck out for Len Liptick. The only question that I can really remember them asking me is, after I thought all the questioning was finished, he says, do you know Ian Bailey? Ian Bailey, the reporter who spent weeks covering the story, and it was clearly a big story for West Cork, and I just happened to be um, in... I, well, I just happened to be here. Ian Bailey, who took us out to the crime scene. Anyway, I'm just showing you this, so we don't want to be hanging around here. Ian Bailey, who happened to have a long black coat. Well, they seemed to put an awful lot of um, emphasis on the fact that I had a black coat. You know, you need a, a good coat, don't you, for the, the winter climates here. Have you any few words? Ono is Ian Bailey. That's just the more Irish-sounding name Ian gave himself. It's what Florence knew to call him that morning of the Christmas swim. Her tape was seized by the guards. They wanted to take a look at this bit, where Ian appears in shot, wearing a long black coat and wide-brimmed black hat. The guards wanted to see how he was acting, just two days after the murder, and to check for any sign of injury. They asked Florence... She said she'd seen scratches on his hands, like little rivers. From the video, his hands are out of shot, so it's not clear either way. You're a man of many words. I have, the only comment I have to make at the moment is to talk to my lawyer. What about a poem? I like my trusting God. What about a poem, Maud? A limerick. On the pier in Skull, as I stand here, gazing into your lens, looking over to the island of Shakespeare. It's difficult to make out Ian's joke. Florence asks him for a few words. He replies, The only comment I have to make is you can talk to my lawyer. And I put my trust in God. West Cork is an Audible original production. Written and produced by Jennifer Ford and Sam Bungie. Produced in sound design by Kristen Muller, Alex Trahano, Robin Wise and Paul Schneider. Our theme music was composed by Shani Avaram. Our recording engineer is Sean Moher. West Cork is edited by Mike Olive. Our fact checker is Christine Baird. And Jesse Baker and Eric Newsom are the executive producers. 
Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at bluenile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.